Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the writer and the creator of The Boring Conference, James Ward, on his book, Adventures in Stationery, A Journey Through Your Pencil Case. James Ward's blog, I Like Boring Things, has featured in The Independent, The Observer and on the BBC website. He is co-founder of Stationery Club and London's annual Boring Conference, a one-day celebration of the ordinary and the overlooked, as featured everywhere from the Wall Street Journal to Radio 4. James's first book is Adventures in Stationery, A Journey Through Your Pencil Case. James, that's the book we're going to be talking about today, so welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Where does this fascination with the ordinary and the overlooked come from then? When did it begin? I guess it's sort of just built up over the years. I mean, when I first started my blog called I Like Boring Things, I just started a blog because everyone else seemed to have a blog at that time. It was before, uh, it wasn't before Twitter, but it was like, you know, people seem to have blogs. And so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do a blog. That sounds good. And didn't really know what to call it. Uh, I think I was originally going to call it, I think I pressed the wrong button. But I thought that was <laughs> that was a terrible name. So then I decided to call it, I Like Boring Things, which is a, a quote from Andy Warhol in Popism. He uses that line and he says that he likes boring things, but he, he thinks that the things that he finds boring are not the same as the things that other people find boring. And he gives the example of the popular dramas and series on TV at the time, that people watch it even though basically the same thing happens in more or less every episode, Mm -hmm. they're very formulaic. And he says that most people seem to like watching the exact same thing as long as the details are slightly different, whereas he prefers, if he's going to watch the exact same thing, he wants it to be exactly the same over and over again because the more you look at the exact same thing the more the meaning goes away, what he says. And I, I don't really agree with him. I kind of think that the more you look at the exact same thing, the richer in meaning it becomes because you kind of reveal like hidden layers that you, that you hadn't really noticed were there to begin with. To bastardise Flaubert, there's that quote about anything is interesting if you stare at it long enough. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, there's also a John Cage. I always get Cage and Kale mixed up. There's a quote where he said that uh, if something's boring for one minute, then try it for two mm-hmm. it's still boring than than four than eight than 16 and eventually you'll find that it's not boring at all that's a nice snappy aphorism but when actually applied to anything would it work <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean there probably are uh situations where that wouldn't come true but it's a nice soundbite there are some things that are deemed acceptable to be massively interested in and there's some that are not it's almost like a you know a league table I should say, because we're inevitably going to bring up football, of things that are, that are deemed worthy of people's attention. Yeah, and I find it, I find it really weird, because I wasn't consulted on what this league table should look like and how you have, like, there's acceptable enthusiasms. Mm-hmm. So that's things like football or music or film or food or normal things that mm-hmm. people in the pub talk about. Then there's all this other stuff as well. So if, if you're in a pub and you're talking to a guy and he is an enormous Spurs fan or whatever and he could name every single line-up in every match or the score in the last ten cup finals or whatever, like that is just considered a normal guy mm-hmm. who knows his football. 
Whereas if the other person that he was talking to then went to the toilet, came back and said, oh, did you see the hand dryer that they've got in there? And started talking about, with the same amount of enthusiasm, started talking about the electric hand dryer that's mm-hmm. in the toilets, then that is considered weird. But the two people have done the exact same thing. They've both kind of filled their brain with information. And yet, for some reason, the guy who has filled his brain with the information about the football matches is considered normal and the guy who's filled his brain with information about electric hand dryers like Tim Steiner who's spoken of boring he's considered kind of weird and what's actually even less justifiable about that situation is the guy who's filled his brain with information about football I mean that's all on Wikipedia (laughs) whereas the types of hand dryers that are used in different London pubs that's not on Wikipedia so that guy who's filling his brain with stuff about electric hand dryers is doing a better contribution towards humanity well, it's interesting, though, because there are, even within the overlooked or the, the considered by the mainstream uninteresting fields, there is still a call and a non-call. So everybody mocks train spotters, for instance. Train spotters do something and other people seem weird, but they don't have some sort of interesting philosophy about why trains are, you know, a sort of everyday overlooked <laughs> object that they can fall back on. Yeah, there is that. I mean, I'm sure there are some train spotters who have a philosophy as to why they like spotting trains, but I think a big part of it is just the satisfaction of crossing off a list, and it's it's like they're just doing it as a a sort of mission that can be accomplished, Mm -hmm. something that can be achieved, not as something in itself. We're bird watchers, but that to me means just looking at birds when they're going about their business. The idea of running around the country with a book, ticking them off and then saying, well, that's it, I've seen that one, I don't need to do that anymore, I find just completely bewildering because it's it's nature and it's beauty and it's behaviour that is the thing that interests me. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just something that you want to tick off a list and then you're like, well, done birds. <laughs> like, birds are completed, now on to trains. Like, you don't want to get to a point where, like, if you're interested in birds, that birds have finished for you. <laughs> So that does seem a sort of strange uh, approach to, to your interests. Well, I mentioned having a sort of philosophy to fall back on. I want to bring up Georges Perec, the, uh, the French author, who I think is quite a, a big influence on you. So tell us who he is and what you like about him. OK, well, Georges Perec was a um, French writer who was very interested in the mundane and quotidian. He came up with this phrase, the infraordinary which was opposed to the extraordinary. And in various of his books, he, he was also very interested in sort of constraints in terms of writing and, and used sort of mathematical constraints or um, he wrote a book without using the letter E and then followed that with another book where the only vowel in the book was the letter E. He sort of used all of those E's that he'd saved from the previous book. Um, he did a book called uh, Life, a User's Manual, which is about a, an apartment building in, in France and he uses this very sort of arcane, complicated mathematical formula to move from room to room and then revisit each, each room and tell what, say what's happening. There's lots of very long lists. Uh, one of the rooms that he visits in that book is like a pantry. The chapter on the pantry is basically a list of every single item that's in that pantry. I must admit that I did skip some of that when I was reading <laughs> it. And then he, he also wrote a book called An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in Paris, where he went to like a cafe in this little square in the centre of Paris and he, he sat at a table by the window and he looked out and he described everything that he could see and then the next day he went back to that same table in the same cafe uh, looking out the same window and again he described everything he could see and then on the third day he went back again and did the same thing describing exactly everything that he could see but each time he sort of described them in slightly different ways what he's trying to do there is he's trying to find out what happens when nothing happens and So he comes up with this theory of the infraordinary, and it sounds quite trivial and, you know, like we're living in a time when there's, you know, economic hardship, there's brutality on TV screens in the news all the time. So it seems very Mm self-indulgent. But his point is that it isn't in the sense that by studying the everyday and the overlooked, you sort of reveal patterns that would otherwise be hidden. I mean, he gives the example of if there was a, a mine collapse and killed loads of mine workers then that would be on front page news but the slow death that is caused through the working conditions of those miners in terms of ill health and stuff like that that goes on for for much longer and probably has a much greater human cost 
that gets overlooked and that's just sort of accepted and he's like well which is more serious is it the just because it's a dramatic thing that happened why should that be on the front page and not why does the newspaper not tell the real story of the people who are working in the mines that's possibly me desperately seeking some sort of justification for writing about paperclips or whatever but I do think that there is some sort of underlying story that we're missing if we're only focusing on the big stuff Listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about a couple of examples of you pursuing this sort of thing from the blogging years that are both in the book, but I want to talk about them in the context of you doing it. Because I think in some ways we're going to talk about your pursuit of the of the numbers of little <laughs> pens that Argos get through. And I think in some ways the fact that it it unfolded as you did this over months highlights it in a in a more obvious way than a yeah. chapter in a book does. Tell um, us what that was, that project. Well, basically, I started getting interested in... Well, because I, I sort of had this interest in stationery and, and someone suggested, oh, what about Argos pens? Like, what do you think about them? I kind of never really considered them. Like, obviously, we all know that they're these little blue pens, but that's it. And so I went into a branch of Argos and stole a pen. I, it was the most thrilling experience of my life. Um, ran out of the store. I'd never felt so alive with my uh, loot. And then I decided I'd use the pen as a normal pen at work the next day. And it was sort of uncomfortable and it was difficult to write with. And I kind of thought, well, maybe that it's sort of deliberately uncomfortable because they're so cheap because they have to make so many of them. But then they might also deliberately make them unpleasant to write with to sort of deter people from stealing them. So I thought that's sort of a reasonable assumption. And then I thought, well, I wonder how many people do steal them how many did they get through in a year so I emailed Argos and I asked them how many pens did you get through in a year and they emailed back and said unfortunately we can't tell you how many pens we get through in a year because this is business sensitive information and is only available to people who work for the company and I thought right well in that case I'm going to have to go and get a job at Argos I didn't want to get a job in like an Argos store because I thought they're not going to have access to the level of information that I want so it needs to be head office in Milton Keynes. So I looked on their website and applied for every single job that came up on the uh, Argos head office, ranging from quite junior level all the way back to quite senior level in every single department of the head office. Jobs that I was clearly unqualified for, but the point was that I I was sort of determined to, to get this. And over sort of several months, I applied for like 50 or 60 jobs. But at no point did... I get an email from Argos asking me, hmm, we've noticed that you're applying for every single job, regardless of how qualified you are for it. What is the reason for that? All they did is they just sent me like these standard form rejections of, oh, unfortunately, on this occasion, you weren't suitable, but we'll keep your records on file. Always. Every single time. It was basically the exact same email, but they'd all come from different people. But then sometimes like the email address would be, one person's name and then it would be signed off by a different person so then I started to wonder if any of these people actually existed so then I started emailing them back and saying oh I just noticed that you've signed your email by the wrong name are you okay like do you think you need to take a bit of time off and then I would get like no response from that and I just thought this is just seemed really funny that no one at Argos had noticed that there was obviously some other motivation for applying for all these jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I took a day off work and I went up to Milton Keynes and went to the head office. And there was one particular person whose name just it kept like appearing in different emails from different people. And I was just like, it was like it was like, almost like some sort of strange David Lynch personality, like horror thing where these people were sort of morphing into different people. And so I went and I asked the security, oh, is uh, blah, blah, blah here? And then they said, oh, she's she's swiped in, but she's not 
um, answering her phone. And I was like, this is some sort of, like, weird... It just it started to feel kind of really weird and sinister. But to, Not to just the, the crazy stalking man was in reception. <laughs> yeah, looking back on it, they might have just said that so that I'd leave. Um, but at the time, because it had been building up over all these months, and you don't really get that in the book you are saying about when it was on the blog, that you're sort of following the story mm-hmm. in real time. And it is that sort of build-up, I think, is probably a bit more satisfying um, when you're seeing it in real time and then you, you're realising that it's a real thing that I'm doing I'm not just making up a story and then pretending to have done that like I genuinely did do that for several months um, and it's the same with the there's a, another story in the book which is something else which originated on my blog which is about the thousands of uses for blue tack where I'd, I'd noticed that on packaging of blue tack it says clean and original doesn't dry out thousands of uses and I thought thousands of uses that seems like a stretch because basically there's like four uses which is holding stuff up holding stuff down impromptu office space sculpture and like you know when you want to make a hole in a bit of card with a pencil and you don't want to stab your hand so you make a little ball of blue tack and you use that so I was like what are the other uses and then I gradually sort of started thinking about it and I was like oh maybe you can use a bit to sort of clean out dust from a keyboard or something and like there are various sort of things and I came up with maybe like 40 uses in total but then that still leaves 1960 that are outstanding and so I I emailed a very nice woman called Michelle at Bostick and asked for this list and there was like a back and forth which went on for several months again it was it was all very nice I sent her a, a Christmas card and we sort of like build up this rapport and she'd send me like some uses and then I'd be like yeah but that's still not thousands and then she sent me a, a few more and then eventually she sent me like um about 250 in a list but she in the email she said the thing is we don't want to be too prescriptive when it comes to telling people how they can use blue tack because that way it loses some of the magic and i was like oh i'd never i'd never thought of the magic of blue tack and she sent me she sent me a pack of blue tack as well so i've kept that as like a special memento of our correspondence and i think that that's like that use of blue tack was one that i'd never considered before that it could have that sort of sentimental a thousand and one. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps they should amend the packaging. So I want to talk about what it is about stationery. There are people that are into stationery for its aesthetic value, and obviously some has more value than others. But at the same time, stationery seems to be to absolutely epitomise this idea of the ordinary and the overlooked, because stationery, it's vital to us and it surrounds us from the moment we become literate as children at school... If we have any form of white-collar job in our life, we're surrounded by it all day at work. In the process of writing the book, and when people were sort of said, oh, you're writing a book, what's it about? And then I'll say, oh, it's about stationery. And then quite often people will go, yeah, but what's it really about? And I'd be like, no, 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 I am writing a book about stationery. And then they'd say, well, why? But as I was getting into it more and more, I kind of realised like how fundamental stationery is not just to our day-to-day lives now but almost like it's what created civilization and that sounds slightly insane but i do almost believe it because the way that humans make sense of the world is by making marks on stuff and that started in you know making marks in, in clay on on walls and then cave paintings and then sort of cuneiform language hieroglyphics then sort of modern written language all of that is how we now make sense of the world and it's how you're able to pass knowledge down through generations and enables understanding of the world to build in aggregate. We're able now to read the things that Greeks, Romans, like Pliny, all of this kind of stuff exists in our consciousness now because someone wrote it down then. I'm not sure how novelty erasers fit into this this plan. I can see you have pens and pencils and paper. Yeah, but then, you know, you want to have a bit of fun at the weekend, don't you? So it can't all be work, work, work. (laughs) So as I started researching it and looking into it, then that question of why write a book about stationery, now I'm kind of thinking, why would anyone write a book about anything else? How is it that there hadn't already been a book about Mm -hmm. stationery? I mean, that's part of the reason that I wrote it, is because I'd been looking on Amazon thinking, oh, I wish there was a book about stationery. I'd quite like to read that. And then there wasn't. 
So now I had to do it. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm the only person who can't read it. That's the tragedy. <laughs> I'm John Grindrod. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's talk about where your obsession with stationery began then. There's an incident at the beginning of this book, a sort of revelatory incident in a station on the south coast. Uh, yes, yeah. It's um, this shop called Fowler's Stationery in Worcester Park, which is kind of on the, the London-Surrey border, which is where I grew up. And I used to go to this shop when I was a kid because that was the sort of kid that I was. Uh, I mean, there was a WH Smith's at the bottom of the high street, which wasn't really as satisfying this shop it's really nice it's a family-run independent shop still run by the same people and i'd just go in there and it was like this weird little shop and they had these strange things that i didn't recognize sort of office supplies and, and different types of paper and things and then i went back to the shop a couple of years ago i was going to like a family party or something i was a bit early and i went into the shop and then i was looking around and i found this thing at the back of like a shelf it was all sort of dusty and kind of tatty and it was a, a Velos 1377 revolving desk tidy. And I'd never heard of Velos before. It was in this weird-looking box, which I could tell was decades old, and had obviously just been on the back of the shelf all this time. So it had probably been on that shelf when I was a kid, going into that shop. But I'd never picked it up. Maybe it was the shelf was too high, so I'd never managed to buy it. So then I finding this thing and realising it that it had been there all this time and no one had ever picked it up and I didn't know who this company were. So then I, I bought it and I took it to the counter and the guy looked at me like, what's this? But it had a price tag on it, so it didn't have a barcode because <laughs> it was so old, but it had a, a price sticker on it. And so, uh, so I bought it and then I took it home and, and there was like a little leaflet inside which listed all of their other products and stuff. I was like really interested in what this company were and why don't they exist anymore and the reason they don't exist anymore is because they've been bought up by some sort of part of some conglomerate that one company merged with another and so now the brand sort of does exist in some modified form selling like ringlets for perforators and stuff but they don't exist as like an entity in themselves and then that started making me realize how little I knew about stationery mm -hmm. this thing that I kind of thought that I was interested in suddenly I was like well there's this whole world of stationery that I've never explored and I'd never really considered this history of it that there are things that existed once and don't exist anymore and companies and names and people and I started thinking well what else is there that I don't know and then that made me write 75,000 words about stationery. Well, before that came Stationery Club. So what was that? How did that come about? That started as a hashtag by my friend Ed Ross um, on Twitter. When he'd sometimes tweet about stationery, he'd use the hashtag Stationery Club. But I thought that Stationery Club, it sounded too good. It sounded like it deserved to be a real club. Mm -hmm. So I had this vision of it being like a book club. But like with a book club, everyone buys the same book and they all read the same book, and then they get together and they discuss that book. So I thought, well, with Stationery Club, what should happen is someone should sort of nominate a particular pen, and then everyone goes and buys that pen, and then we discuss what it was like using that pen. Like, oh, it was a bit smudgy or a bit scratchy or, or whatever. That was perhaps a bit too specific. Yeah, that would have been too much discussion. <laughs> and so it sort of generalised into a, into a wider discussion and then we had a few different ones on like different themes, so things like notebooks was one and, and people got very, uh, very territorial almost about what type of notebook that they like, uh, what type of paper they like, whether they like plain paper, lined paper, if they like, if they like narrow lines, if they like wide lines... Um, some people like square. There's all sorts of different papers, and people have very, very strong feelings. And that that one got a bit rowdy as people were arguing the, the case for. Particularly, the divisive is issue was the moleskin. There's people who are very pro and people who are very anti. And I'm I'm ambivalent about it. We'll come back to that in the second half because I want to talk particularly about about notebooks. And I have strong feelings on the subject myself, <laughs> but. As you've just mentioned, I mean, this was an interest and a hobby and something, you know, something to write about in your spare time, but then it developed into an actual proper work, a 75,000-word book. And I should mention that James is a friend that I've known you for a number of years, right back from the, the beginning of this book, and I've watched it grow and basically watched you 
shout about it on Facebook. So tell us about the... I want to talk about this tortuous process of of writing a book, basically. Um, How did you find it? I've definitely learnt a lot during the process. And when I started a very, very long time ago, um, there's such an enormous leap between writing a blog and writing a book. They're completely different disciplines, basically. Writing a, a blog... Well, for one thing, it's very much easier to include images and links... Um, it's quite you can't really link in a book so you have to be a lot more you have to think a, a, a bit more and with a blog there's no editor there's just me I'm not writing for a particular audience I'm writing what I think is interesting and so I can be as self-indulgent as I want and I can take very long digressions and I can spend months and months and months following up the one story about how many pens Argos use and I can you know write that over a dozen 1,000 word long blog posts or whatever because I'm the only one that I decide what goes in and what goes out and no one's paid money to read my blog so if they don't like it then go and read something else whereas once you get to the point where there's you know there's going to be a book that people are going to buy hopefully people are going to buy I don't know yet um that people are going to buy and spend time with. It's a different experience of reading a book, just as it's a different experience of reading a blog. So reading and writing a book and reading and writing blogs, they're completely unrelated. So it has to be something that can build over the course of 75,000 words, and hopefully people will read all of those words. (laughs) That's the aim. Although I was speaking to my mum the other day, and she said, oh, I've, I've nearly finished your book. I said, oh, that's, that's quick. And she went, yeah, well, I did skip some of it. listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to James Ward and we're talking about his book Adventures in Stationery, A Journey Through Your Pencil Case. And James, listeners will have noticed that we've barely touched on the book in the in the first half of the show. So in the in the second half, let's just talk about some random items of stationery okay. from the book, their stories, why you like them, all that sort of thing. And so we may as well start right at the beginning. What I say at the beginning, because I want to talk about pens, and obviously there's a bit of a bit of a history before we actually yeah. get to pens. But pens, as you've already described, are I think really the the central item of your uh, your thesis. That <laughs> Stationery is responsible for civilization, and obviously paper as well. But let's, yeah. let's talk about pens. The, the, for two, a bit. the two do sort of quite often go together. <laughs> I had to go out and buy a new pen at lunchtime, and I must admit I was a bit nervous about it because I knew we were going to be coming in. And this is—it's clearly a rip-off of a Bic pen, but um, a, a cheaper version, twenty-five p. That's pretty good. I was looking on on my phone on the way, and I found a pen that was eighteen thousand pounds. What is it about pens? Well, those kind of absurdly expensive pens. I mean, yeah, there are ones which are even more than that, and they've you know got diamonds on them and all that kind of stuff. I find that a very bizarre idea that anyone would spend that sort of money on on a pen when they could just give that money to me. Uh, so that kind of stationery is not something that appeals to me, even if I had that kind of money. Um, I'm much more interested in the type of pens that we use every day so things like the bit crystal or just a generic ballpoint or the stapler 430m there's sort of i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The pens that do all of the hard work, they're the ones that you use in the office that end up being chewed or, or whatever. The story of how Laszlo Biro came to sort of invent... There were various other people who developed different mechanisms, ballpoint mechanisms, but Laszlo Biro was the one who sort of really cracked it, and now his name lives on as, as the Biro, but... Even though there's not actually a pen that you can buy that's called the Biro. N- no, the Biro is not really a pen that you can go into a shop and buy now. The pen that people call a Biro, a big Biro, that's the big crystal, which is... Mm-hmm. That's the pen that people call the big pyro, and, but they are different companies and have different, very different histories. Though they did sort of license from each other, and there were various complicated legal wranglings that went on between the two, and went on. For, it's all very complicated. But Laszlo Biro is this really interesting guy. He was Hungarian, and he studied uh, medicine and got very interested in hypnotism. This was just after the First World War. He was studying hypnotism so it was quite early in, in the development of hypnotism and hypnotherapy I guess and he started doing like public demonstrations and found that he was making so much money from these public demonstrations that he basically just gave up studying medicine because he was like wow this is this is where the money's at and then he did various other jobs he was like a he worked in publishing he worked in sales like for an import export business he did various things then he became a journalist and he found with sort of frustration that whenever he went to the print room where it was very very hot because of all the machinery the fountain pen that he had in his pocket would always leak and so he wanted to sort of develop a different type of pen that would be more convenient and more reliable and he noticed how the print rollers how they put the ink onto the page when they're printing and he thought well, maybe we could do I could do something similar like that with like a big cylinder um, or a very small cylinder in a pen but a cylinder can only roll in, in one direction backwards and forwards it can't roll in all directions which you need to write and then there's this possibly untrue kind of apocryphal story he was sitting in a cafe trying to work this out and it had just been raining and there were some kids playing with marbles and one of the marbles rolled through a puddle and he noticed that it made a, a line on the pavement of water and he was like well that's it it can be a ballpoint and then he gradually developed this system very very carefully very methodically whereas other people would come up with similar things and try to rush them through his approach was much more careful and that was why he was able to make this thing that that really worked and all of these other people who rushed out their ballpoints it was sort of following the second world war they made huge sales but they were so unreliable that it almost killed off the ballpoint pen, particularly in the US. There was various slightly less scrupulous pen manufacturers whose the quality of their pens was not very good. So public faith in the ballpoint, it sort of exploded in this massive enthusiasm and then everyone was like, oh, actually, these pens are not so good. But then you get someone like Marcel Bick who comes along uh, with the Bic Crystal and it's hardly changed in the 60, 65 years almost that it's been around, they sell, they've sold billions and billions of them. It's in the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York as part of their permanent collection. It's just this beautiful piece of design, and that has just proven its worth. It's a beautiful object. It's a really functional object, so it, it looks nice, 
and it it works and so that's that's what design should be they've changed sort of in terms of like changes they've put an, a hole at the end of the lid so that if someone swallows it they won't choke to death but that's almost like the only change that has happened since 1950-51. Obviously there are hundreds of different types of pens although obviously a lot of them will be variations on the same sort of technology and obviously there was a sort of technological arms race to design a working pen to get to that ballpoint the pencil, on the other hand, seems to be, to the untrained eye, a pencil is a pencil is a pencil. Is that the case, or has there been a technological um, advances in the, well, in the pencil? In terms of pure technology, the pencil hasn't really changed much in a couple of hundred years. I mean, the pencil itself was kind of invented in Keswick, in, in Cumbria, in 1600 and something, there was a, there was a storm and a, a tree got knocked down and it revealed this sort of deposit of this strange black stuff, which the locals kind of called wad, or, or which is graphite, basically. And they realised that you could use, like, lumps of it to mark your sheep or whatever. And then they realised that, actually, if you covered it in, in wool or string, then you could produce something that you can use and it's not going to make your hands dirty. Or if you encased it in wood, then that make something which is even more sort of durable and, and useful and so that's how the pencil uh, develops and then there isn't really much change until I guess in the 1800s when clay started being mixed in with the graphite and that then means you're not so reliant on pure great quality graphite because you're, you're mixing it in with this other stuff and also that means that you can then start getting different grades so you can either increase or decrease the amount of clay and then you can have hard pencils or soft pencils so you have 9H, uh, 5B, 2H, whatever, HB all of those different possibilities are a result of this use of, of clay and then from there there hasn't really been much in, in terms of change but there are certainly people who feel very strongly that there is a huge difference between different types of pencils <laughs> And you get people who are very fanatical fans of a particular pencil. So, for instance, uh, Roald Dahl uh, would write with a, a yellow Ticonderoga Dixon. Um, John Steinbeck loved the Blackwing 602, uh, which is this pencil which it was made by Eberhard Faber and then it got discontinued because basically not enough people were buying them. And the company got bought out and then there was this... There wasn't a huge demand because they, they were a bit more expensive than normal pencils, they, they, but they had this sort of nice quality that they, they, they have the slogan, uh, twice the speed, half the pressure, because they write so smoothly. And they have this weird little clip which holds the eraser on the end. And then what happened is the machine that makes the bit that goes inside that clip broke. And because they weren't really making enough, they just were uh, like, well, we've got, you know, a few boxes of these clips so we'll just carry on using them and then once we get to the end of that we'll won't bother making the pencil but then once it became discontinued people became really obsessed with it and it got this sort of mythical status and people would start buying up supplies and i mean you can you can go on ebay and and you know people were buying them for like 30 or 40 dollars for an unsharpened as new blackwing 602 and the people who are buying them, they're buying them to use. They're not buying them to keep. And obviously, when you use a pencil, each time you're sharpening it, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So the more you use it, the more this thing that you love, that you love to use, you're, you know, you're killing it. So it's this really interesting thing. And then, and then what happened is, a couple of years ago, a pencil manufacturer realised that the name Blackwing 602 is no longer trademarked it expired and so they registered the trademark and then relaunched the 602 there's a slight controversy within blackwing aficionados because what the palomino 602 in their advertising they the eberhard faber 602 has this very rich heritage it was used by i was going to say chuck norris not chuck norris the animator uh, Chuck Jones and like Nelson Riddle used them, uh, John Steinbeck, Hemingway, like all of these people that used this pencil. And in the Palomino literature, in their advertising materials, they hint 
that it's the same pencil when really it's a completely different pencil but it's just got the same name and sort of looks the same and so there's this thing where they're sort of stealing or maybe not stealing but certainly blurring the heritage of their pencil in with the heritage of this other I'm Olivia Lang and you're listening to Little Atoms a radio show about ideas and culture Another version of that story. I mentioned we were going to talk about notebooks, and I'll get you to tell the story of the of the moleskin notebook because it's basically almost a, an exact repeat of that story. But you know, first of all, I said you know I do have opinions, <laughs> and um, I mean it's not an eighteen thousand pound pen by any means. But there is something to me that sort of symbolises, you know, the epitome of Western sort of middle class problems, this idea of paying a lot of money, relatively a lot of money, obviously it's not that much money, really, for a notebook. But it does seem to be this idea that the expensive notebook, the idea that you would buy that notebook because you're going to write a book or you're going to write poems or you're going to put your your important ideas in this. And it almost symbolises to me that that notebook itself is more important to you than the quality of the ideas that you're putting in it, if you see what I mean. It seems like a way of putting off the actual work. It's almost like, I've bought the notebook, that's it, I've written the book, that's that's fine. Yeah, it's it's sort of this, you feel that you've achieved something, Mm -hmm. but actually it's just a form of procrastination. It's the same as, you know, you've got to write something in, in words and you spend half an hour choosing which font you can use because you feel, well, I'm, I'm doing something practical and constructive, I'm achieving something here, whereas actually all you're doing is just like going through a number of options and, and going, oh, Georgia, or whatever it is that you're going to use. That's the one that I use. Yeah, people do have this kind of thing about moleskin, and, and some people are very, very anti-it for the reasons that you've kind of explained, um, and some people are very, very in favour of it. I mean, the moleskin itself is similarly to the Blackwing story. They've kind of borrowed heritage. There was uh, a travel writer, Bruce Chatwin, who he was in France and he was going to uh, Australia, I think. And he used to go to a a little stationery shop and he'd buy these kind of little black notebooks with a sort of oilskin cover. And he really liked them and he wanted to buy a few to sort of last him during his his travels in Australia. And, And then the company that made them, the guy had died and so the, the factory had closed down and he wasn't able to get them anymore. And then there's sort of various other writers who sort of mentioned these similar types of notebooks, so Hemingway and, and all of these kind of people. And then in the 90s, this Italian publishers, they decided to produce a notebook which was similar to the one that had been described and um, they started manufacturing them and they became very well known and that, that was the, the moleskin and then but again in, in their literature they they sort of imply that there's this heritage this continual heritage from those original users to the product that you buy now whereas actually there's no connection whatsoever and what's also interesting about the moleskin uh, I mean it, it's a it's a quality product but there's almost like a placebo effect associated with it because a few years ago they changed their packaging. A new label was printed where on the inside it says printed and made in China and it didn't used to say that on the, on the products before and people started going, oh, have you noticed that now they're, in, they're mass produced in China, the quality's gone down and oh, I, I always try and make sure that I can stock up on supplies from the pre-China days and you know they're not they're not as good anymore but in fact they'd always been made in China it was just it didn't say that and people have this strange idea that made in China means bad quality but in fact paper was invented in China that's where that's the home of paper and so this this idea that oh made in China means bad quality in terms of paper production it's completely untrue you've mentioned the paper clip a couple of times earlier in the interview and we've been talking about pens and paper which are the sort of you know the workhorses of daily work the paper clip even more seems like a overlooked uninteresting unnoticed item but it also has a you know a long and a long and interesting history yeah i mean the exact origins of the paper clip are slightly unclear 
there's a common belief that it was invented by this uh, guy called uh, Johan Vala, who was this Norwegian inventor, and he did patent a type of clip, but it's not the the familiar gem double loop design that we know today. It's it was not quite there, but because there was this sort of belief that uh, a Norwegian had had used it during the Second World War in the Nazi occupation, uh, people used to use wear paper clips on their lapels as a kind of subtle form or sign of resistance because uh, not anything to do with the belief that the paperclip was a Norwegian invention because that only became widespread after but it was a sort of subtle sign like we're all bound together and also it's very plausible to deny if some guard comes up to you and says why have you got that paperclip on your lapel you can just say oh, I was doing some paperwork earlier and I just put it there and forgot so it's it's easy to sort of deny but it if you know what it means, then you, you sort of recognise it. So then after the Second World War, this fact that it had been used in this way, plus this belief that it had been invented by a Norwegian, and it started that started appearing in sort of encyclopedias after the war. These two stories kind of combined into the paperclip and, and Johan Vala becoming like this symbol of, of Norway, and he became like almost like a folk hero, and he's, he's appeared on a postage stamp, although actually the, the image of the paperclip that's on the stamp with him is not his design. Uh, they also put up uh, in the Oslo Business School, they built like a giant sculpture of a, of a paperclip, but again, that's not his design. So it's like he's being remembered for something that he didn't invent. And then no one really knows who did invent the sort of the gem. There's a, a patent from 1891, I think, by a guy called uh, William Middlebrook. Um, which does show the gem clip, but it's actually a patent for the machine that makes the clip rather than for the clip itself. And there's evidence that the paperclip existed before that in terms of like trade magazines and advertising materials. You can see images of it before that. So it's this really interesting thing of it's so familiar, the paperclip. We all know it, we all use it. And yet, because we take all of this stuff for, for granted, that record of who actually invented it just got has just been completely lost. I mean, you mentioned the familiarity of the, the paperclip design. It seems almost inconceivable that there were, once upon a time, other types of paperclip. What sort of things? How did the paperclip used to look before the, the uh, more familiar gem? Well, you can still get these sort of alternative designs. They haven't completely died out, but the gem-type clip is, is sort of the ubiquitous one. But there's, there's things like butterfly clips, where they have um, this sort of crossover... Uh, they're sort of like two triangles with a slight split, so it's almost like butterfly wings. Um, there's a box clip um, or the owl clip. They've all got sort of these really amazing names, and they're all just people trying to come up with different ways of using a bit of wire to hold two bits of paper together. There's a, a guy, uh, William McGill, who I think in like 1904 alone patented sort of 11 different designs. You just think that like this this sort of restlessness of this man constantly trying to come up with a, a way of holding some bits of paper together or wire and sort of constantly doodling and his wife sort of putting up with it in this resigned kind of way. Oh, now what are you up to, William? Oh, no, George, George McGill, sorry. What is it about the gem then? Why did that one win out? Is it is it just better or is it one of those cases where it was just produced more or something? Um, it's sort of... Some people kind of describe it as like this perfect piece of design and that it sort of has been unchanged, but that's not really true. And there have been various people come up with different types. There's like a, a gothic clip, which has got a, a flatter end and a sort of more pointed opposite end. So then it lies flatter with the paper and it's easier to slide on. But then that pointed end can sort of damage the paper slightly. Or there's versions with a raised lip and then that's easier to get on and off, but then it means that if you've got a stack of paper, then those little raised lips, if you've got a stack of different papers, then that makes it a bit bulkier. There's ones where there's uh, they have like little grooves along the clip, so it grips better, but then it's harder to remove. So there's all of like these different variations, and they, they all seem to improve on the gem in some ways, but then cause other problems along in other ways and so the gem itself just seems like the one which is 
it's kind of okay all round. It's not perfect, but it will sort of do. It just manages to be fine across the board. And then that's, I guess that's why it sort of has endured. I'm Jonathan Meads and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Just one final item of stationery that you talk about in the book then, and and I want to move us to office wear, office machinery, the stapler. You describe the stapler in the book as something that we have a different level of relationship with to a well-loved pen or a well-loved notebook or something. Yeah, I think that people, they do sort of become attached to it and... I mean, part of the reason is is because it, it's more substantial. It's, it's made out of metal. You know, you push it down and it crunches through paper. It, it feels like it's more of a thing than, than a ballpoint. It feels more substantial. The fact that when it runs out, you put more staples in, it's not like a disposable thing. You know, there's, there's probably companies where they replace the computers more frequently than they replace the staplers because they they last quite a long time. And people do become very attached to them uh, in this way that I mean with a with a notebook no one's going to steal your notebook at work because it's got your notes in it with a ballpoint pen people don't really care about which one they use they'll go into a meeting with one put it down pick up another without even noticing and walk out with a different one so people just are quite happy to swap those around but people feel that like a stapler belongs to them so whether it's the guy in office space who becomes very protective of his red swing line stapler there's a, a an episode in um, the office where one of the sort of tricks that tim plays on uh, gareth is he puts his stapler in jelly or something and that reveals like this fact that people do find them they think that they belong to them and quite often when people leave companies they found that people sort of tend to steal the staplers because they sort of feel like they're theirs and they don't sort of like this idea of the stapler being returned to the stationery cupboard for an, a new person to use it. It's almost like a sort of betrayal. You mentioned there the film, the cool American independent film Office Space, and there's a, a further story to that red stapler that appears in that film, isn't it? Yeah, well, when they were making the film, because it, it's set in a sort of very bleak office with sort of cubicles where there's lots of grey, and the production designer decided that he wanted this stapler to be bright red because then it would stand out. But Swingline at the time, they didn't make a red stapler. They used to, but it had been discontinued. And so the designer contacted Swingline and he said, well, would it be OK if we basically just spray-painted them red? Then Swingline, much to their good fortune, the person on the other end of the phone said, yeah, that would be fine. And so they took half a dozen of, of these staplers to a sort of a local auto repair place and got them professionally spray-painted red. And then the film became like this cult hit and people started then emailing Swingline saying, where can I buy a red stapler? Um, or people started making their own. And as this sort of built up and it became more and more of this like cult hit, Swingline realised what they were onto and how they'd accidentally just lucked out, basically. And then they were like, hey, maybe we should make a red stapler. And then they, they started selling them. And, and yeah, now they've got them in all, all sorts of different colours and people much more because Swingline in particular they used to target they didn't target like the the individual consumer they target buyers for big offices and they a buyer for a big office isn't going to be interested in bright colors because they don't care they just want however many staplers they can get for whatever their stapler budget is that year but once you start getting sort of individual consumers buying it then things like fashion and color come into it because people want something that looks nice and if it's if it's like the one in that cool film that they like then that's even better and now they yeah so they've got like this this website where people can post selfies of themselves holding their 
their stapler or, or showing their stapler in, in weird locations. So there's like pictures of staplers on the sides of hot tubs and stuff or, or up trees and in fields. And you're like, what? I feel jealous of a stapler. That stapler's having a better life than me. <laughs> We're nearly out of time, but to finish off, what I really love about the book is it's it's about stationery, but it's also about you and how you relate to these things. And it's a little element of of memoir there. And so inevitably, nostalgia. The book kicks off with this, the Velos revolving desk tidy. And you talk about school stationery, you know, the protractor and the pencil case and, and erasers and things like that. And, and I say nostalgia because we're sort of at a point in history where technology is taking over from stationery. A lot of this stationery perhaps seems to a lot of people to be redundant. Does it have a future? Are we moving towards a stationary-less world, do you think? Or um, will we always need it? Yeah, well, I, I certainly hope we're not seeing the end of stationary. I don't think that we will, because I think it stationary... I mean, there's, there's a sort of tactile joy in these objects, and the physical process of writing something by hand is very different to typing something out on a keyboard... So I think it will re- remain. It might it might sort of change in terms of its meaning. There's this thing, and I can't remember who it was who said it, and I have never been able to find it since. It was either, like, Kevin Kelly or Brian Eno or one of those people who say things like this, which was, um, he said that, like, when the electric light bulb was invented, it didn't mean that we stopped using candles. Hmm. It just changed the meaning of candles. And so candles suddenly became romantic, whereas before, before gas lights or electric lights, when you were eating your dinner by candlelight, you weren't thinking, oh, this is romantic. You were thinking, I wish I could see a bit better. And now that becomes like its charm. And it's the same with like vinyl, like the pop and the crackle of vinyl. People consider that like the warmth and charm of it. Whereas when that was the only option that you had, people didn't think oh, this vinyl's great, like, you have to get up every so often and turn the sides over, and sometimes it scratches. That was just the fact that that was all that you had, so you, you just had to put up with its flaws. And, and it's so it's like once a, a technology becomes replaced by something else, then the flaws that were previously there then become its charm. And I think that the things like stationery doesn't have that technology does. So, for instance, you can write something on your phone and it will sync on your laptop and everything can be seamless and you can search whatever it is you can tag things you can retrieve something wherever you are you can always like find stuff and obviously stationery doesn't really have that you can't if you write something in a notebook it doesn't also appear in another notebook and if you can't find that notebook then it's gone so that is a flaw in stationery but then it also is kind of a charm because it means that these things are unique and they're they're personal and they're that's the only one that you've got if it's a handwritten letter from someone that's the handwritten letter that they've written to you it's not an email that they've copied and pasted and sent to a million other people so those kind of qualities become something which people will cherish and so i think technology won't replace stationery the two will continue to exist side by side but it might mean that stationery then serves a different function you've been listening to little atoms i've been talking to james ward about his book adventures in stationery a journey through your pencil case which is out now from profile books and i should say not only is it a fantastic read but it's a a really beautiful artifact as well there's loads of amazing diagrams and pictures in it as well so james thank you very much for taking the time to come and tell us about it thank you it's been an, an honor to talk to you You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.